This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. Today, looking at Paul McCartney's wonderful Christmas time. Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast looking at the world behind Christmas music. My theory is that conversations on Christmas music find their way into a lot of corners of American life, and today we're going to talk about taste. Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time is one of the most popular contemporary Christmas songs, but perhaps because it is so popular, it also finds itself on lists of the most disliked and worst Christmas songs. How can both things be true, and what inspires that antipathy? To examine this song, I've spoken to two people who've covered it. Jake One is one half of Tuxedo, along with singer Meyer Hawthorne. Recently, they released Tuxedo 3, which pulls together cool, vaguely retro electro boogie and funk grooves for an album that sounds ready for the roller rink. In 2014, they recorded a version of Wonderful Christmas Time in that mode. And more recently, New Orleans rock band uh, The Breton Sound released a Foo Fighters-like version. I'll start with Breton Sound's Jonathan Priedis, who joined me in the studio. Then I'll catch up with Jake One by phone. To start the conversation, though, here's Paul McCartney's original. Then I'll be back on the other side with Jonathan Priedis of the Breton Sound. Spirits up, we're here tonight, and that's enough. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. The party's on. How do you feel about that song? I used to be fairly indifferent about it, I think, when I was younger, because, you know, I'm a huge Beatles fan, and... It's just so different from everything else McCartney ever touched, uh, at, at least before I really knew much about McCartney, too. Um, it's so different and so weird, and I love Christmas music. And I think as I got older and listened to it more, there's a thing about it that I think is, uh, is interesting in that it has the se- it's. I feel like, cr- like good Christmas music is kind of auditory sensory, like... It's sounds that make you feel a feeling or like you can picture things. And for that, like there right as it starts at the beginning, there's kind of this high note that kind of fades in. That's almost like the it's like the auditory sound of snow to me. Right. Of like nighttime snow. And so it, it now it feels very much like Christmas to me. I get that people hate it and you know, it's it's a hotbed issue, but I adore the song. Yeah. It's the song. I'm always trying to get my hand, my, my thoughts around why people dislike it so mm-hmm. much. Um, and I've read a lot of critiques of it. Uh, and for instance, I know a lot of people bust on that it lives and dies on the phrase wonderful Christmas time. Right. <laughs> but I actually rather like the almost postcard like verses. Yeah. You know, that each verse is only two or three lines. Right. Before you get back to that and simply having a wonderful Christmas time. That's a postcard. That is. Yeah, that's, that's a Christmas exa- card. It's, it's a tagline, you know, and, you know, people have said, you know, oh, well, you know, if you A, B it to, you know, Happy Christmas War is over, you know, it, it's such a, you know, it's such a lesser work. But it's kind of from the same cloth of give peace a chance. You're just putting across a message and that repetition drives it into the listener's head. Um, so the idea of simply having a wonderful Christmas time, it says it right there. Simply like it's simple. It's just a simple, happy holiday song. You know, it's not meant to be White Christmas. It's not, you know, some super deep thing. It's just, it's a simple, happy Christmas song. It's what McCartney is great at. Simple, pleasant things. Right. You know, uh, the other thing I've I've wondered about is if that keyboard sound Mm -hmm. was kind of one of those sort of transitional sounds that never has been really thoroughly reclaimed. Right. Like, 
at that time, that was the the song is 1979, and it's most commonly thought to be a Prophet Five synth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's at least that's what's in the video, right? And the Prophet Five is 1978. Mm-hmm. So at this point, McCartney is an early adopter, and it's entirely possible that he is literally just figuring out what More can I make likely, this thing do. Yeah, it, that's what it sounds like to me. It kind of reminds me, and I know every time we talk, my reference points are Beatles and Beach Boys. Uh, it it's kind of like uh, the Beach Boys love you where it's like Brian got a synth and he made a record. He's not a synth genius, but he wrote songs on a synth. Um, This is very much like a rudimentary, like I have a synth and a delay and I can do these four sounds. Um, What can I do with that? And McCartney's always kind of done that. Like I think a lot of the Beatles did that, where it's like we found a Mellotron. What can we do with it? We can do this. Um, You know, even, you know, back to like... uh, Oh, what's the song on uh, on Rubber Soul? Uh, Think for yourself. McCartney got a fuzz pedal, put a, a overdubbed a second bass track with a fuzz. Like he, they always were just trying new things just to try them, and if it hits, great. If not, whatever. There's always another song to come. Yeah, and I would imagine also. I mean, you you I'm sure experienced this as a musician yourself. Mm-hmm. There's points where it's like, here's a cool gimmicky. You know, here's a th- new thing I have. Here's a new toy. Right. What can I do with my new toy? And you're not going to spend your new toy trying to just replay Mustang Sally. Right. You're going to like what can what? How do I how do I do my shit with it? Right. Like, would you want to hear McCartney's 1979, you know, Prophet, you know, synth version of White Christmas or, you know, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, or hear him just come up with something off the top of his head? And he didn't know it was going to live on to be, you know, 40 years on a. A classic for right, some right. people. You know, you just thought it was a, a Christmas single for the market. That's yeah. all it was, you know? You know, that's one of those places where I often think, kind of be, you know, as fans mm-hmm. and as listeners, we have an entirely different narrative in our heads than they do. Right. And, you know, if you're McCartney, by 19, you know, by 1979, you've got 20, you know, you've got 20 years of making music under your belt. Mm-hmm. And 20 years, is that right? Well, almost. Yeah, because I mean, they started kind of working in with 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 intent probably around fifty nine. Okay, 50, 58, 59. So yeah, right. about twenty years. Yeah. yeah. So at this point, McCartney's not necessarily strategizing every single right, and he's not thinking that every next thing I do is going to establish my personality. Mm-hmm. By that point. His personality, whatever he, whoever he was, that was already in the world. I mean, right. both not only as a as a as a Beatle, but as, as Wings, as a solo act. Yeah, and I think also it's, you know, they kind of got to that point of, you know, who do I want to be on this release, or who am I today, and that's what comes out. So like, because look at like the first McCartney record, it's just him experimenting with a four track at home, coming up with melodies and you know little things here and there. Now, of course, he's got. You know, maybe I'm amazed and all these other great songs on it, but lo- the lovely Linda is just him checking levels on a four track. Um, and I think there's stuff on McCartney too, like uh, "Check My Machine" is him learning how to play a synth and use the gear he has at this time. Um, you know, like uh, "Instant Karma" is Lennon reporting on something that he did today, or "Battle of, or Ballad of John and Yoko" is the same thing. Um, it's just kind of, here's where I am today. That's where I was before. I don't know where I'll be tomorrow, but I'll put out a record for it, too. Um, and that's kind of the fun thing as a listener is you're kind of tracking where they are in their lives, you know, throughout, throughout releases. You know, so in 79, 80, he was kind of in a transitional period because Wings was kind of falling apart. Um, I think he was trying to figure out where to go because what was the record before that? Was it London Town? Mm-hmm. And kind of a stinker. And there's a little bit of, synth stuff on there like with a little luck right like i can't stand that song i think wonderful christmas time is miles more enjoyable ah, than ah, with a little ah. luck but it's also got like a stinker of a synth solo in it you know right so i think it, it's at that point and then music around him is changing like punk's coming in new wave is coming in and you know he is kind of the dinosaur at that point he's trying to figure out where am i gonna fit into this atmosphere going forward Right. And messing with things like synthesizers and delays and, you know, doing that kind of stuff is just him, you know, fishing around for what's the next 
you know, what's the next thing for, for me as a performer and as an artist? Yeah, and the interesting thing is, is that it actually ha- is, I hate to say ahead of its time, because I feel like when people want to make that claim for the song, mm-hmm. they're really making a claim that McCartney would not have made himself. Right. I've seen people who have tried to say, this is like proto-chill wave. And like, I love the idea that someone right. said that, and I love that assertion. And I would like to think that McCartney... Like to have coffee with that guy that said that. Yes. No, no, I like, really like, wouldn't. I would love to pick his brain, be like, let's go deeper on that. See, I think that that right there, though, that quote is as deep as that thought went. Right. But I don't think, realistically, that McCartney was like seeing in a post-punk world that my lane is not going to be punk. My lane is electronic. Mm-hmm. Because nothing we see afterwards says that's really where he hung his hat. So yeah. it's much more likely that... I mean, it, I mean, at that point, the, uh, the, the Prophet 5 was primarily a... Uh, it was expensive enough. That it was primarily was a prog synth. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that Human League was toying with. Right. Uh, and the Ultravox wasn't playing with that at that mm-hmm. point. So it would have been... You know, this was just more like his, you know, that generation trying to, at some point, paw with the toys, with the new toys. Right. And uh, and see how he made his stuff with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's funny. If you, th- if you look back at, like, um, you know, George Harrison put out a record uh, in 68. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. I'm sorry, it's skipping my brain. Is it Wonderwall music? What, no, not Wonderwall music. No. There's another one where basically, like, he got a Moog, and it's the it's him learning how to use it with a uh, inst- basically like an instructor, who was a guy in England that he knew that kind of knew how to use a Moog, and they just recorded it, and then he put it out as a record. It's like Technicolor something maybe. Oh right. Um, oh, what's it called? Oh darn it! Uh, electronic sound. Electronic sound. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's literally just 40 minutes of bleep loops. It's right. not essential for anything, but it's just him putting out, him learning how to do something. Is there market value in that? To some extent, sure. Is there artistic value? Maybe. Um, but when you have that ability to just put out whatever you want, you kind of just do it because you can. Um, so there are, I think, documents of you know musicians just stumbling upon a sound and putting it into a record. Um, Probably, especially with you know early Moog stuff and early you know synth things like that. Um, so I don't think it's too unfounded to to hear it. I think the difference comes is that at, at this point in '79, Paul McCartney is becoming Paul McCartney um, as we know now, not like Paul McCartney post Beatles. Who's he going to be? He's becoming legacy Paul McCartney. Um, not quite, maybe to that point of deification that he's at now. But he can pretty much do what he wants at this point, and right. it's going to be successful. Um, now, does it help that the song is incredibly catchy? Yes. Is that also maybe a hindrance? Maybe. Maybe that's why people hate it so much, because it is extremely catchy to the to the point of like it's almost like it's a it's a small world. It's so damn catchy. That's why it's in your head for hours and hours and hours. Is that good? Is that bad? Who's that to say? Right. I'm sure there are people that love It's a Small World, after all. that That's their favorite song, maybe. If you go to the Small World Pavilion, go see It's a Small World at Disney Disneyland, mm-hmm. you do regret it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> after after how long? Uh, really fast, actually. Yeah. It's pretty impressive <laughs> how fast you go, man, this was a mistake. See, and that's the great thing, is Wonderful Christmas Time, four minutes and you're done, and yeah. you're off to the next song. Yeah. Um, See, I think part of what I there the things I think are most interesting in the and that I map onto the rejection of the song mm-hmm. is one is how could a Beatle do this? <laughs> and it's like he's McCartney. He's written songs this slight before. Yeah. Um, you know, he is Mr. When I'm sixty four. Sixty four, yeah. You know, honey pie. Yeah. Uh oh blah dee, oh blah da. Get yeah. out of here. <laughs> like Yeah. On. Yeah. So it's I like I, I don't see that. And I think part of it is, I think, the American fascination with work. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I believe that one of my pet theories is, like, one of the reasons that Springsteen caught in the first place. Even, you know, 
even more than the songs was the fact that he went on stage and played, worked for mm -hmm. three right. or more hours. Yeah. He didn't just go on stage and he played. He moved, he ran, he danced, he climbed, mm -hmm. he jumped. That Springsteen went on stage and he worked. Right. And, you know, America loves work. Mm -hmm. People who work, that, that you, you show the labor. America wants to know that your guitar player can actually play. You know, England doesn't, English audiences don't have nearly the fetish for, am I, is the guy I'm hearing, a guy who's, who me. we're told, no, is the guy who's, who's playing that guitar solo, is that really the guitar player or is that like a studio right. guy brought in? Sure. Americans need to know it's that guy. Yeah. You know, like people who loved Millie Vanilli, it's like the song didn't get worse when you did, when you found out those guys didn't sing it. Mm -hmm. What you're put off by is the fact that they didn't do the work. It's not who you thought it was. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, and I think the idea that McCartney goes out there and makes just crazy, crazy money mm -hmm. and has this endless, the song that's living, uh, will, you know, outlive us all. And it doesn't sound like you worked very hard. He didn't work. Those lyrics don't sound like you worked. And I think there's this kind of a sense of like, there's an injustice here. Yeah. That this is, you know, that, He's so successful with this thing that he just didn't try very hard on. Right. You know, and that, I think that's a really interesting point, because if you listen to, if you consider kind of your other Christmas classics, your Bing Crosby's, your uh, Johnny Mathis, your Nat King Cole, everything is very orchestrated, very overdubbed, very lush. There's obviously, you know, 40 people in a room playing on a track at some point. That's the sound of labor, you know. And with this, it's a guy in a barn with a synth and a multi-track, you know, right. and copious amounts of weed just yeah. coming up with this little melody. Um, yeah, I, I could see, because, yeah, that is an interesting point, because the markets are very different. Um, and I do feel like this song is what is a lot more appreciated in England and in other, in, in other markets than here. This is probably the only place where it's quite so maligned as it is. You right. Know? That's a really interesting, interesting fact, interesting thought. So let's get move on and let's hear your version because I brought you in because because you, okay. you covered it. So anyway, let's hear this and then we can talk about what you did differently and how you solved some of the musical problems. of my artistic career. <laughs> yep, it was downhill from there. All right. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was fun to make. We did that um, at my house. We did that all by ourselves. Uh, it was the first thing we did with John Bourgeois as our drummer. Um, and I'm the only person in the band that likes Christmas music. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It was truly a labor of love for everybody else that they uh, love uh, me enough to agree to do that. <laughs> So tell me about the how you what you have uh, the thought process in in uh, in that arrangement. Um, well, it kind of started off. I, I do love the song itself. It's too long. McCartney's version goes. The I think it's like there's a, a version that goes on for like six minutes. Like there's a really there's an edited version that's the more common, but it really can go on for a while. So that was like kind of the first thing, and then it just kind of, kind of just fell into place, and it was like, how can we make this kind of like a. a pop punk 90s ish type rock song um and it kind of just fell into place like the idea of steven's guitar kind of echoing the delay synth with the dong 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 and doing kind of that was um something i think he and i both kind of came up with in the beginning and then from there it just kind of fell into place into how would we do it if we made it if it was our song um so we didn't really overthink it too hard it was kind of just you know make it a little bit faster, put some loud guitars on it and, you know, make it fun and then make it short, you know, be out in three and a half minutes and don't overly repeat 
you know, do 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 do's and all those different parts. Um, so that it was really just kind of like, how can we do this and make it fun? Uh, and I think it I, it feels fun to me. It feels you know, it's a reasonably live take of us in our in our rehearsal space and and doing that. And I think it comes through as as a fun version of that. Yeah. What is what were the pieces that you had to make sure showed up or had to show up the way they showed up? Because it, I mean, mm. it seems like you're basically working with, again, you're working some pretty sturdy pop material. Right. Um, you know, I think having some semblance of that kind of delay part in some form uh, was important. Kind of that call and response of like that seemed really important. Um, obviously, the melody is 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 pretty bulletproof i think um there's a version uh by someone named um annie lee it's a instrumental piano version it's gorgeous it's a classic mccartney melody it's bulletproof like the melody cannot be touched um that was the version that made me go like god this melody is just stupid good um and then having um some kind of you know transition on the bridge on the choir of children singing their songs part i thought was was important to kind of take it to a different place and then get some kind of cool thing with the, Oh, and all that. That was fun. It kind of let us like stack some harmonies there. Um, so those were kind of the big parts and everything else just kind of falls into place. Cause the melody, the, like you said, the verses are super short. The chorus is just repetition. Um, so it's really, you know, how can we kind of slide around these bridge sections that repeat a lot in his version, um, and do it quick and efficiently. Um, yeah, and that was really kind of the gist of it. I tell you, part of one thing that interests me about the song is again for a song that is, you know, that that can uh, you know set people as the way as it can. Mm-hmm. That at the same time, it also has been really flexible. I mean, you found a way to a way to make it a pop punk song, and later on in the con- in, in the show, we're going to talk with Jake One of Tuxedo, mm-hmm. who managed to figure out how to make a, a sort of an '80s uh, synth jam out of it. And actually, and there's a I've got a bunch of uh, R and B versions, mm-hmm. yeah, and that it loans itself to being it sort of very like much does slow yeah. jammed. Mm-hmm. That I've got a Diana Ross Diana version. Diana Ross version's great. Rashawn Patterson did a great version. Demi Lovato, Kelly Rowland did it. The Shins version's really good. And that's where we'll go to next. And I, I th- uh, so go ahead and say what you're going to say, oh, and I was then we'll get to that. I feel like they they kind of took it in kind of like a Brian Wilson esque route and made it real lighthearted. I think embraced kind of more of the childlike sensibility of the simplicity of it all. And, uh, and their version's only like two and a half minutes. Like they nail it. It's fun. It sounds festive. They don't overdo it with like, it doesn't have jingle bells running the whole way through, which I'm guilty of on our version. Um, but their version's just fantastic. We'll go there now. The mood is right. The spirit's up. We're here tonight, and that's enough. The party's on, the feeling's here. It only comes this time of year. We're simply having a wonderful Christmas time. For a Target commercial, <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> made for it. Now, now he does uh, dispense with the whole sort of uh, reverbed, uh, uh, sort of like the opening synth part. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the uh, what were the strings doing? Were the strings mimicking the, the mimicking I the vocal feel line? Like they're doing the vocal line. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I like how they they do like some hand percussion things. Everything's like. Very room mic heavy, very you know big reverbs as opposed to like the synth delay thing. Um, 
I, I really like the changes that they made in that. Um, the melody changes are cool, but it still kind of maintains the same semblance of the original. Um, and some of the... Um, some of the way that they deliver some of the lyrics changes, like in the bridge, I think is different. Um, yeah, they do like uh, the choir of children part is different in theirs, and it's it's cool. It, it, and I think it speaks to like efficiency on it too. Like they made it real quick sounding, and it never gets laborious and you know overbearing. Yeah, and the fact that they let they play the uh, what is it? It's playing eighth notes mm-hmm. on the playing eighth it's notes like on an organ, just on an organ jump, 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 versus jump. that kind of Hal Blaine drum fill. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and uh, so you kind of get those two playing off each other creates movement in a way that it's very Brian Wilson. Because Brian yeah. Wilson's like the king of the eighth note organ thing, and then like a big you know reverbed out Hal Blaine drum fill. It's exactly what I think he would have done if he'd have made that record. Now, would you would you have uh, played with McCartney's melody? Ugh, I don't know. I don't think I would. I, I think it's too strong. And you know, as I was listening to different versions for this, I wrote down next to this for Annie Lee, uh, solo piano version, instrumental melody is gorgeous. Vintage McCartney shows how polarizing his use of synth can be. Um, cause when you hear it just slowed down on just a piano, it's a, a tearjerker of a melody. It's, it, it's kind of melancholy in a way. Um, in uh, maybe in like that kind of post Christmas hangover kind of way. Um, I don't know that I would have messed with the melody. I, I'm kind of too much of a, hardcore nerd beetle fan about that <laughs> yeah I, I get that so i got one more here that i got especially for you because draw is steering into the nerddom and this is the monkeys version oh, i love it i love it so anyway uh this is from the monkeys uh 2018 christmas album uh monkeys party christmas christmas party, christmas party. all right and this is their better version. better than it needed to be yes absolutely so all right here's their version That sounds like a soundtrack version of riding in a like of like a horse-drawn carriage going through you know a snow-filled Chicago or something like they just they hit that there's a vibe on that that I, I think good Christmas songs have uh, there's a vibe that just lets you envision these Christmas sights kind of in your mind's eye and that I think nails it on that one is is that a ukulele? Is there a ukulele in there, or what's that, that high-strummed instrument? That might be like a baritone ukulele of some sort. I'm not positive what that is on there. It, I, and, and they have one that's that's doing the dun 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 dun. And I don't know if it's a delay or if someone's actually playing it, strumming it like that. But I think that's like a baritone ukulele or something. Yeah, because it, it struck me like that's actually doing a lot of great work for just creating the lightness of the song. Right. Yeah. Because um, that's one of the things I think that McCartney's version. If I were going to get in the head of the complainers, mm-hmm. I think if I was my critique of that of that Prophet uh, Five sound is that it's so lightweight uh, that it is in danger of sort of the strength is it, it may well float away. The mm-hmm. downside is it may well float away. Right. And this, I feel like that does that thing, but it has by having a it slightly more organic though. texture. Yeah. That it, or, it sort of grounds it in human experience, mm-hmm. and your and so, you know, because I've, it's a real physical, you know, tangible instrument that you know is manipulated by hands on strings as opposed to a synth. I think it gives it more of that human element and weight to it that lets somebody kind of make it. It feels more real, you know, yeah. like like you said earlier, like you feel that people are, it's people working to build a performance for you as opposed to just like a pothead with a synthesizer. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, I think that's an advantage that that version has. Yeah. And, 
and I suppose, and actually, that's an interesting thought that it might be that these other versions they don't sell like McCartney's version, right? But in some ways, they land well because the wonderful Christmas time that 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 someone is simply having mm-hmm. is really someone having it, yeah. Or or it create you know by by the fact that you can hear kind of human elements in the performance more clearly. Mm-hmm. It's easier to appreciate that a person is singing this song, whereas with those lyrics living next to that sound, that is anybody having that experience right. is a fair question. Right. I think. And I think also, it gives a, the each performer the chance to go, "How would I do this differently?" And that's always going to land with somebody who already hated it. Like, right. So somebody that hears McCartney's version is like, oh, it's awful, but they love rock stuff, might love my version of it. Or somebody who hates McCartney's but is really into indie stuff is going to love the Shins version of it. Um, So it kind of lets it be a little more accessible because it's just more people's input as opposed to just that of one person's vision. children sing their songs. Jake One from Tuxedo. Unfortunately, the sound on this call is a little rough, but I think his take on wonderful Christmas time and Christmas music is worth working through. things I find uh, that I particularly like about Tuxedo is the uh, the keyboard sound. And clearly these are all, I assume these are all vintage synths, correct? For sure. Yeah, a thousand percent. It's, it's just, you know, ironically, it's one of these things where I kind of got into collecting vintage synths around the time I started making some of this music. And it probably really drove me in that direction more than anything because I just thought the sounds were so cool. And, you know, I was into a lot of those records that came out, you know, in the early 80s. And, you know, I, I bought, like, a, a big one for me is when I bought the Moog Memory Mode. And I got it, and I was like, oh, man, this is, like, the same lead sound that's on Atomic Dog. You know, like, just stuff like that. Some of them are just the presets. And you would hear it and know it instantly, like, oh, that's where they made that record off. And uh, it just kind of developed about more and more about more expensive ones more coveted rare ones and it's definitely like uh it's something that really shapes the sound of the group more than anything i think how many key how many keyboards do you have now uh, i think i have like 13 but they're all kind of in various states of disrepair like in my in my actual studio i think i have like seven or eight that are functioning and I kind of have like a graveyard in the garage of ones that I just don't feel like we're going to get them fixed or, you know, they're partly working. And then I have ones I just like have with tuxedo to travel around with those two. Do, do individual sounds shape songs? Oh, for sure. I mean, I vividly I remember I had bought the memory mode off eBay. And it came to my house, and I plugged it up, and I made it so good, like, that same day, just because the sound was so exciting to me. And, you know, I feel like I have a story like that for every keyboard I bought. Like, an initial just, you know, excitement over having a new sound to play with led to something great. Oh, that's great. You know, one of the things I, I really like about what you do, and it's something I've kind of, as time has passed, I, I like more and more in artists, is to have musicians make music that really does kind of tip their hand and show you their fandom and show you the things that they liked. And, you know, that there was, there was a point where part of almost the fetish of making music was to act as if whatever you are, you're doing is the first time this thing's ever been done. 
and <laughs> right, right. And, and and well, obviously, there's a lot that there's you know originality is important, and it's obviously a part of what you do. The fact is, along the way, you don't have to talk to you to know that chic is a part of what you do. That hip hop isn't a part of right. what you do. That you know you can you can you can hear where you and I have the same record collections. Right, right. Um, I think it's easy for me to do that with something like Tuxedo because I, I feel like I already carved my own lane in hip hop where I kind of did something different in that and brought my, you know, and initially I didn't have that and it was something I found over time. I I don't know. I, I always consider myself, first of all, more of a fan of music than like some grand artist. So that was never really the goal for me. I never really, I always, even as a kid, whenever somebody would, like a, a artists would do something I like, and then they would say, "Well, yeah, we, you know, this new album, we took it to the next level, or did something like that." It usually wasn't good to me, and I kind of just, you know, liked, you know, things that are a little more, I guess, predictable. You know, I, I just want it to be good. I don't, I don't get caught up in the semantics of like, did you invent this or is this a new chord? Like that, that's just not what I do music for. You know, it's not about feeling. Um, so yeah, I mean it. It is. It is. Uh, you know, there's definitely times that I feel like sometimes people get our influences totally wrong. Right. Um, but that's fine too. Like I don't even. I don't take it personal. I, I know. I mean, there was a clear directive when we started this thing of what we were even going for. We really just wanted to make something that was a combination of like the G funk that we grew up listening to, hip hop wise, and then. You know, the groups that inspired that, which is the cameos and the gap bands and the zaps and cheeks and shallow marks. Like, that was really what I was going for, and, and, and definitely Mayor was, you know, aligned with that. Um, and I think sometimes the G-Talk part of it gets lost, because that's the hip-hop that really makes the entire thing possible, you know? Right. Because we're not, like... A traditional band, we don't sit around and jam and come up with a song. It's true. So, one of the reasons I that I wanted to talk to you today is because uh, Tuxedo covered uh, "Wonderful Christmas Time" in maybe 2016, right. 2015. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like right after our album came out, I think, or maybe even before the album came out. I can't remember. So, what made you choose to do "Wonderful Christmas Time"? Uh, you know, I don't even remember how it came up. Um, I just say, like, our manager was like, you guys need to do a Christmas song. And even, I can always remember my dad, you know, even in my super underground hip-hop days, he'd always tell me, like, you need to make a Christmas hit. They make money forever. And, you know, quit playing around. He'd, always, he'd seriously tell me this, like, at least once a year around the holidays. And, and uh, you know, my dad wasn't a musician or anything, but he had the right idea. Um, yeah, like, I don't know. I, the funny thing about that particular song is I wasn't even aware necessarily it was a party song. Um, I got hit to it through Daylock sampling it on one of their albums, and I just thought it was dope. I didn't even know it was a Christmas song. Oh, really? Um, yeah, so I was kind of late to it. And, uh, you know, we kind of decided on that song. And then um, I kind of wanted to make it, you know, sometimes the challenge is making things that don't necessarily go together, you know, fit. And to me, I just thought it was funny to do a, a tuxedo Christmas song because Christmas songs are usually pretty happy. And even though our songs are pretty happy, they don't necessarily have those kind of chords, just the excessive major, you know, happy chord. So... Even like when I made the original track, I was trying to find a way to darken it up a little bit and make it a little more jazzy. Um, and I was, you know, kind of going for like, because it was kind of early in the sound of Tuxedo, like something I felt like would just be one of our songs that would joke, regardless of the Christmas element. So that was kind of how we came up with that. Um, you know, lots of synth, obviously. It definitely, you know, and the synth on the original is amazing too. So you know, trying to like make something that wasn't exactly that, but more tuxedo. So, with the original, I've, that 
I'm fascinated with the song because it is one of the most, on one hand, it's one of the most successful Christmas songs in that it, in that it gets played and played a lot every Christmas season. But at the same time, it also each year is one of everybody's least favorite Christmas songs. Have you thought about what it is? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's uh, I mean, it, I find it fascinating because there are the reasons people dislike it typically are partly because basically it's a beetle and it seems like he should be working harder than those lyrics. Um, <laughs> yeah. And they, and in general, they find just the repetition of wonderful Christmas time to be, to be a tester. But I've always w- thought that part of the challenge was, was the keyboards because you, and you might have, well, only because it felt like that's kind of like a transitional sound, like at the time, you know, like in that, that was, that was pretty early for whatever that, for that sound. And I always think it still sounds a little bit squirrely and, uh, and a little bit abrasive, which is part of what I like about it. But I could also understand why other people could find it, could find it challenging. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think we obviously had an impossible standard to live up to being part of the Beatles. So, like, I feel like if another guy would have made that song, people would not be upset in that way. Um, to me, my favorite part is, like, the, the, the keyboard sound, the intro. I love that. I think it's dope. Um, and I don't even know what they use. It kind of sounds like a prophet or some sort of polymode kind of thing. I like the little delay they put on it, but that was really cool. Um, it's funny I'm not even sure if I know the lyrics I don't really know the lyrics to a lot of songs so that kind of stuff isn't really it doesn't really bother me like I kind of more go for this I hear the groove way before I hear any of the other stuff I've actually come to rather like to admire the lyrics because they're so economical and they and they all read like the back of postcards that uh, I mean they're literally you know that uh, it's like here's just a quick quick sketch of what we're what we're doing right now, having a wonderful time, and uh, that's actually kind of you know kind of beautifully and uh, beautifully and uh, and economical. Uh, so I'm quite fond of that. I mean, sometimes that makes the best song, you know. Like it's it's not necessarily it's what it's about making people feel something, and for whatever reason, it's probably literally what he did that day. Right. You know, like <laughs> some, some I've seen rappers do that where they come in the studio and it's like it might sound outlandish, but that was their day. Ah, you know, ah, you throw ah. some throw some some little fiction on there and you got a song. What did you what keyboard did you use to replace or to, or you know, the, the parts that he uh the, the keyboards that, uh, that he used, like the to do that kind of signature sound. Memory, that was that was in memory mode as well for sure. Um, that was kind of what we were using on all the early stuff for everything. Uh, I don't remember what I played the lead on. Maybe probably remember Moog as well. Um, it's funny. I have to tell you, I, I interviewed Mayor about this probably about two or three years ago, and, and he couldn't. Even then, he already couldn't tell me much about it. That <laughs> that he pretty much right. he pretty much pawned it all off on you. And uh, and that was a yeah. Pop- I mean, I was my. It was definitely my my one I wanted to do. And then I think I made the track and just gave it to him. He probably just sang it like in ten minutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Were there musical challenges you had to work out to do that? Um, my, the original version I did was definitely darker, and uh, not exactly you know true to the chords and stuff like that of the. Of the original and uh sam wish who's a keyboard player musical extravaganza guy for tuxedo he kind of made him work a little better for the for the context of christmas time um i was definitely trying to make it a little more gangster um <laughs> for sure oh, that's that's, cool. that's obviously what i remember about the song the most i'm not sure i'm gonna have to try to find the original version because it was definitely a little different oh i'd love to hear it 
Uh, it was definitely do? like I was trying to make like a, a dog pound song for Christmas or something, which they have, they have a couple of great Christmas songs. Death Row did a Christmas album, actually. Yeah, it's really good. Or parts of it are really good. It's actually pretty good. Yeah. Did you have a, a background with Christmas music? Was it part of your growing up? Uh, you know, I wouldn't really say. So, um, I know, like, you know, I think definitely didn't live in a neighborhood where people, like, were going around singing Christmas carols or nothing like that. I don't remember any of that. Um, I think the ones that, like, I would hear would just be kind of the generic, like, you know, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I do remember uh, my dad liked the Donny Hathaway song a lot. Is this Christmas? Is yep. that the song? Yep. That was, that was probably my favorite out of the ones uh, that would get played, but it definitely wasn't like, oh, it's Christmas time and that's all we're going to listen to. He was definitely playing Coltrane a lot more than that. No. Uh, so maybe Coltrane made a Christmas song and I don't know about it, though. Not... I can't imagine he would have, but you never know. Everybody, everybody needs some money at some point. Oh no! Didn't he do a version of uh, my favorite things? Oh, there you go. Yeah, I think uh, I know. I've got right right now, not having it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure I've got it that I do have a Coltrane version of my favorite things, which is a maybe or maybe not Christmas song. It's one of those where Christmas has come to accumulate it, whether it you know it really is or not. So. Very fringe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why did y'all? So was this just well, a matter know, of? So you did Christmas songs because you know either dad or managers thought this was a good idea. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, holiday love was even kind of funnier because we had already made a song and all that, you know, over that beat, and uh, I don't remember what the original title was. It was some sort of love, and then he just was like, let's call it Holiday Love. Because <laughs> ah. <laughs> we had did the one the year before, so we are like, let's drop another Christmas song. People were asking us. So we just went in there and changed the lyrics and a couple of nods to Christmas. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's funny why I listen to it now. I'm just like, man, that was kind of outlandish. Ah. Um, And I didn't even know the Christmas song is the Outcast Players Ball. Like, oh yeah, that's, that's amazing. You know, who would have thought? You know that that was a Christmas song. But when I heard the story about that, I was like, that's that's really great. Thanks to Jake Cohen. Oh, 
for the time and the talk. You can find them online at Facebook, where you can also find me at 12 Songs of Christmas. Let me know how you feel about Wonderful Christmas Time and what your favorite version is if you have one. Thanks, as always, to AF The Naysayer for our theme music, and thanks to you for listening. We'll go out with one more version of Wonderful Christmas Time, this one by Diana Ross. It's the title track from her 2018 Christmas album, which will be re-released on black and limited edition red vinyl this Christmas season. Talk to you next week.